0: Well, hello again. Um, yesterday, I went down to Tucson for the day uh, with my family. It was my niece's third birthday, so happy birthday, Caroline! Um, she's three, so she's not watching this, but I'm just saying it just for whoever. Um, so we went down to Tucson, and you know, with now we're a family of five, and so packing up is kind of a pain, and. I'm getting all the boys into the car, and now Judah's in the, the third row of the car, and so in order to get him all buckled up, like, you got to shove your head in and like, reach and get it all, and I get them all buckled in, and Sarah's inside feeding the baby. You know, we're just about to go, and she yells, hey, "Don't forget to make the boys go to the bathroom." And I'm like, "Oh, cool." And so I unbuckle our kids and I get them back out of the car. And Judah goes to the bathroom, and then our three-year-old Cohen, um, he, I bring him to the toilet. And I'm like, all right, go to the bathroom, buddy. And he says, no, I don't, I don't need to go. And I'm like, well, I understand that you don't think you need to go to the bathroom, but like, we're about to get in the car for two hours. You know, I'm explaining things to a three-year-old that a three-year-old can't understand. And I'm like, just get on, just go on the toilet and go to the bathroom. Just do it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. We get into this little kind of arguing match and where at, at some point he kind of just starts like, no, I already went, you know, he's like angry now, he's yelling, and I'm like, fine, fine, whatever. If you say you've already gone, then okay, whatever. And so we get into the car, get them all rebuckled, uh, we pull out, uh, we get to the first stop sign, we turn left, and almost immediately after that, Cohen, our three-year-old, yells, I got to go potty. I got to go potty, like panicked because he has to go so bad. And I don't know if you've experienced this as a parent, but like, it's like this kind of frustration, this anger that bubbles up. And I'm like, this is exactly what I warned you about. I was just talking to you about this. And here we are, just like I said, we would let, you know, like we have hardly left the driveway. And you know, we made it to 40th Street, and th- we made it not even half a mile till we pulled off in Starbucks and had to change his underwear because he peed his pants for, in the literal 30 seconds that, you know, it, it was just so frustrating for me. Um, but I, I just remember feeling like this is, we just talked about this, right? Today, uh, we're, we're talking about Exodus 32. And two weeks ago, uh, God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. We read about these Ten Commandments, that God gave the Israelites these rules, this, this law, in order that they would flourish. Like, for their own good, he gave them this stu- this, these laws. And in Exodus 32, I feel like God has got to be like the, the dad whose kid just peed himself after, you know, because he's like, I just gave you these, I just told you what to do, and here you are doing the exact opposite. Like, I just, we, we have hardly pulled out of the driveway, Israel. Like, we are barely even g- gone anywhere, and here we are doing the exact thing that I asked you not to do. Um, and so before we open up scripture, I'm just going to pray for us, and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it Uh, reveals who you are, that it shows us who we are. God, help us uh, just to see you this morning. Would you remove any distractions? And uh, God, would we just leave a changed people? It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says this, that when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, Remember, Moses has been up on the mountain receiving the, 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 how to build the tabernacle, as we talked about this last week. He's been up on this mountain. They gather around Aaron, who's kind of the number two, Moses' brother. They gather around Aaron and say, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, And your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, this seems a little strange to us, right? Moses has been gone for the Bible tells us 40 days. He's up on this mountain, so he's been gone for a little while. And at the first sign of uncertainty, the first, uh, first sign of fear of un, of the unknown, what's going to happen next? The people make for themselves a golden calf. And and as Americans in 2023, we think that makes no sense at all. But you got to remember, for these people the golden calf is actually what made sense to them. The golden calf was tip, a typical god in Egypt, right? There's this god Apis back in Egypt, and they would make golden statues of these, uh, of these gods, including this golden calf. And so this is what they knew. This is, this is what, where they came from. This is going back to what they were before, right? There were all sorts of statues like this in Egypt. And here's, here's the deal. The Israelites, they belonged to Yahweh, but they were behaving like Egyptians still. This is what they had seen. This is what made sense to them. And as soon as they get into this place where they're questioning, well, where's Moses? What are we going to do next? They just go back to what they were doing before. This tends to be actually a little bit of a pattern throughout scripture. Um, and it's a problem, It's a problem because in Exodus 20, like we talked about earlier, when God gives them the Ten Commandments, he says this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So here we are, 12 chapters later, God has given them these commands, and it's almost like they're using these commands of what not to do as directions of what they're going to do. Right? It's, like, it's almost like word for word. They're, they're like, all right, God said not to do that, so we're going to do it. Right? But, but this, is, this is so common throughout Scripture that people would go back to their old ways. They go back to their old gods. They go back to their old life. Right? When uh, Jesus, after he dies on the cross... The, the disciples are distraught. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's going to happen next. They're feel fearful. And where does Jesus find Peter and James and John and Andrew, these fishermen? They're out fishing on the lake. They're back to doing what they were doing before they met Jesus, right? They've gone back to their old life. Jesus actually uh, gives us some direction on this in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. For us as a non-agrarian society, we're like, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean put your hand to the plow and look back? But if you think about it, if you were plowing a field with an animal and you had this plow, and if, I don't know if you've ever seen a farm before, but they make really straight lines, right? And they plow up the dirt and make these straight lines. If you start looking over your shoulder, looking back behind you, you start to veer off course. And one row veering off course becomes another row that's even worse and another row that's, and then all of a sudden it's a mess. And God is likening this, Jesus is likening this to us when we look back to our old life, when we're like, I- I'm gonna go back to what I used to be doing. I'm gonna go back to who I was before I met Jesus. Um, and, and what he's actually calling us to do is, is to get rid of the old life. To burn the ships, essentially. I don't know, you've probably heard this saying, burn the ships. Uh, it comes from the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortes. When he came to the Americas, um, he knew that it was going to be difficult and that the men were going to want to turn back. And so the first thing he had his men do was burn the ships. That way there was no plan B. There was no way they were going back because there was no way to get back. Right? We, we are called to burn the ships. And the Israelites, what they're doing here is they're returning to their plan B. They're going back to their old ways. And in doing so, what ends up happening is they look like everyone else around them. They look like the culture around them. They look like the Egyptians again, right? And so not only are they they going back to their own ways, but what we see in verses five and six is that they begin to make God into who they want him to be. In verse five, it says that when Aaron saw this, He built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Notice that the Lord is in all caps. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So it says Aaron now, they've built this this golden calf, and now Aaron puts an altar in front of the calf this altar to the calf, and then he says, tomorrow we're going to have a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. And, and so what's happening here is not that they're only starting to worship this other God, what's happening is the Israelites are taking uh, the identity of this Egyptian God and trying to place it on the true God. Right? They're trying to take the identity of this, this golden calf god, Apis, from Egypt. They're trying to take this god and, and say, this is what Yahweh is like. This is what God is like. He's like this golden calf. And, um, and, and essentially what they're doing is they're choosing to make God how they want him to be, not how God describes himself. There's a, a really thoughtful, deep movie um, that actually explains this point perfectly. And we're going to take a look at it. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. Okay. Beer, 8 pounds, 6 ounce. Newborn infant Jesus. All right, that's... You know that's a, a kind of a ridiculous depiction, but this is actually kind of what's happening. The Israelites are, are saying, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make God how I like to see him, right?" I, I love what he says there. Like, I like my Jesus to party because I like to party, right? Like, you know, we, we begin to do this thing where we make Jesus look like us. That we make God begin to look like us. Um, we all do this in little ways, sometimes in big ways. Well, we tend to ignore the attributes of God that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable, and and just focus on the ones that we do like, right? And so, um, what we end up doing is we create this caricature of God that's disproportionate. It doesn't match up with how God describes himself. It actually ends up looking more like us than it does God sometimes. Uh, I, I saw this study a couple weeks ago and it was about um, how Christians viewed God and how they thought Jesus would vote in an election. And something interesting happened in this, uh, in this study. Almost all the, the Christians that they took the, the study of thought that Jesus would vote the same way they would. But what was wild is there were Christians that were far-left Democrats and Christians that were far-right Republicans, and everyone thought, you know what, Jesus would vote like I would, because my God does what I do, right? And, and there's probably people here now thinking like, oh, well, who would think that Jesus would be a Democrat, or who would think that Jesus, you know, because that we, we make a God into our own image sometimes. It's convenient for us to make a God into our own image, because... A God that's made in our own image never challenges us, right? He always agrees with everything I already think. So it's extremely convenient that God is just like me because guess what? I'm always right. I don't have to change. He never challenges any of my thinking, any of my preconceived notions, right? The real God ought to call us out. Tim Keller in one of his books talks about this, that when we know we've gotten a hold of a real God, is when God challenges us. Like, if you've been in any relationship, you know that you're not always going to agree on everything. If you're married here, and you've never had a disagreement with your spouse, I would love for you to stop lying. Because (laughs) it's impossible, right? If we are in relationships with someone, they're going to disagree with us at some point. And we ought to ask ourselves the question, does my God never disagree with me? Like, does he really believe everything I already believe? Does he really agree with everything that I already think? There, there should be some challenge that's happening there, right? The, the Israelites here, they want to make God useful to them. And I think at the end of the day, either I serve God or God serves me. And, and God is asking us this question, will you worship me as I am or are you, are you gonna worship me as you want me to be? Will you worship me as I am, or are you going to worship me as you want me to be? And so they turn him into this useful God. Um, they've gone back to their old ways. They've made God how them, they want him to be. And then we get this picture of, G, of Moses up on the mountain with God. So what's actually now happening up on the mountain? And in verse 7, it says this, that the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. See, this is, we actually get a picture here of the holy God, the, the God of justice that tends to make a lot of us uncomfortable. This, you know, God's anger, angry, he says, says here with his people. But I want to point out, he ought to be angry. Just a couple of verses ago, in Exodus 24-7, God made a covenant with his people. He said, I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people. And in Exodus 24-7, they agree to the covenant, and they say, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. They, tell, they make this covenant with God, and almost immediately, they're breaking this covenant. This would be as if you got married. You make this covenant promises to your spouse, right? Like I, for sickness or in health, um, you know, forsaking all others, I commit myself to you. You make these covenant promises to your spouse and then on your honeymoon, you go and have an affair. The the spouse ought to be angry, right? Because they love you. And this is the same way with God. He's angry because he loves them. They've covenanted with one another. And so he he ought to be angry and he calls them actually stiff-necked people. I love this term, stiff-necked people. Um, You know, in the past, God has called them a holy nation or a royal priesthood, and this is the first time he's given them a a new name that's not great. It's a stiff-necked people. It's not the last time, actually, that he'll say this about the Israelites. Um, But where this term actually comes from is uh, in this agrarian society, you know, when you would plow the field, you would have to take uh, the yoke, which... You would put over the animal's head and attach to uh, the plow, and a stiff-necked animal would not bend its head down in order to allow you to put the yoke on it, and so th- it would be this stubborn animal that just wouldn't allow you uh, to to put the yoke on. and And really, uh, you know, what it's a picture of us uh, for us today. I think is I don't know if you've changed like the diaper of a six to eight month old, but they flail and and they kick. We had Cohen, our, our wild one, he would flail and kick and scream like, you know, just bloody murder, like it was horrible. And the whole time you're thinking, I'm trying to help you, dude. Like, I'm wiping the poop off your butt. And you are like, you're mad at me? Like, I'm just trying to help you out here. And this is what The Israelites are like with God. God is saying, look, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to give you this yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's trying to give them this this good thing. And they won't have it. They're stiff-necked, they're stubborn. Right? They refuse to wear their master's yoke. Um, It's a good thing none of us in here are stiff-necked, right? None of us have this problem. I, I created a little uh, assessment for us called the stiff-necked assessment, all right? And, and these are a couple things we can go through. If, uh, the first is, do you tend to take things personally? Are you just so easily offended? Every, you know, everything someone says offends you. Jesus was unoffendable. Like Jesus knew who he was, and, and he knew where his value was. He had nothing to prove. He was unoffendable, and, and I think if we are just so easily offended, everything's about us, that might mean we, we're stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people are usually very prideful. Um, number two, you think my feelings are the most reasonable. You use, you, you, you know, oh, I don't know why she reacted that way. I would have been fine with it. I wouldn't, that wouldn't have bothered me at all, right? Like I'm the reasonable one. Everyone should act like I'm acting. Um, the other person is always the person who needs to change or apologize. Are you constantly getting into arguments where, man, all these people are so messed up? Well, guess what the common denominator might be? That you're a stiff-necked person. If you're listening to this and you keep thinking of others who need to hear how stiff-necked they are right now, <laughs> right, I, uh, someone uh, a couple months ago uh, my buddy Keaton, he came up to me after a sermon. Um, I think I'd been talking about humility in the sermon. And he came up and he said, that was so great, man. Like, you know, my wife really needed to hear that. And he was joking. He was doing it as a joke. Like, she was right there and we all laughed and ha-ha. So funny. But that that's the truth. People listen to sermons. We listen to, to things like this and we think, oh, I know who exactly who needs to hear this. Like, it's not about me. It's about person sitting next to me, it's about the person back at home, I'm going to send them the link, right? Go ahead, send them the link, but I, I'm st- I still think that, it, you know, this, if it's always other, someone else's problem, someone else needs to hear this. We uh, went to a marriage retreat a couple of years back, and the very first thing they told us to do at this marriage retreat, they said, all right, we're going to draw a circle around ourselves, and for the rest of the time on this marriage retreat, I want you to only focus on what's within the circle. Like, quit trying to change the other person all the time, right? That's what what ends up, you know, tending to happen in marriages. I want to change that person. but We need to focus on ourselves, what we need to hear sometimes. Then also, also, uh, do you often think of how much you do for others? This is maybe like a martyrdom syndrome where you, you think like, oh man, I do so much for everyone else. I look what I did for them, and what I do for them. I just pour out, I pour out, I pour If you're constantly thinking about how you serve other people, you might be a stiff-necked person. Well, uh, God lays these charges against his people. And then what does Moses do with this information? Uh, well, Moses, in the very next verse, in verse 11, it says, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And he begins to pray, and he intercedes for the people of God. And then in verse 14, it actually says that the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is, this is like fascinating to me, that God said he was going to do something. Someone prayed, and it, it changed, right? And here's what I want us to see here is that God was actually making an invitation to Moses to intercede. And you're like, where, where do you see that? How do you see that he's making an invitation to Moses to intercede? Well, God easily could have just done what he was going to do, right? He could have gone and just wiped out the people and, and said to Moses, hey, by the way, when you get down the mountain, no one's going to be there. Like, it's just you now, right? But he doesn't do that. He goes to Moses, he, he tells him, hey this is what the people are doing. It's bad. I'm angry. And I'm, you know, I'm going to start over and it's just going to be you. Like you're, I'm going to give all the blessing to you now, Moses. He's giving Moses an opportunity to intercede for the people. This is um, something that happens over and over actually through scripture. In the Old Testament, there's 33 times that speak of God changing his mind. Uh, It never says like he repents of sin. It, It just says that he relents of calamity or destruction or disaster. Um, In all of those cases but one, it's because either the people repent or because some holy man or prophet intercedes on the people's behalf. Isn't that fascinating? 33 times. you remember in Jonah, the, the story of Jonah, after the, you know, the whole big fish thing happens, he's in Nineveh, He basically gives them the shortest sermon of all time. He just says, 40 days, and you're overthrown. Like, he just gives them this warning. And Nineveh, what do they do? They repent. They change their ways. They turn to God. And and it says that because they repented, that God did not bring the disaster. He didn't do it. Right? There's this implied promise throughout Scripture that when, when people repent, God will relent. Jeremiah 18 actually says it pretty explicitly in verse 7. It says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I build up and plan it and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. I think so often we think our prayers don't do anything, right? Like God is sovereign, which he is, and so why even pray? But throughout scripture, we see God responding to prayers within his sovereignty. We can't control God to do something, but but God wants to hear us pray. He's inviting us to intercede. It's like when your kids come to you asking for something for their sibling. That's what intercession is like, that your kids come to you and ask like, hey, you know, I can't imagine if my five-year-old came to me and said, hey, you know my three-year-old brother, he seems a little sad today. Could we give him some extra love? Like, I would be overjoyed to do that, right? That's what intercession is like. Too often, we end up not asking because we don't think God is going to do anything. But throughout scripture, I think we're told to ask boldly while we still surrender completely. This is what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, before he goes goes to the cross. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He asks boldly. And then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will, but what you will. He surrenders completely. We can ask boldly and surrender completely. And so God hears Moses and he relents. And uh, Moses ends up, he goes down the mountain, he sees what's happening, Uh, you know, he completely destroys this this image, this false God, um, grinds it up, makes them drink it in their water, he has to squash this rebellion. It's very harsh. It's very it's rough. Um, but then something interesting happens in verse 30. It says that the next day, Moses said to the people, "You have committed a great sin." So now it's the next day. You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, "Oh, what a great sin these people have committed! They have made themselves gods of gold." But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. When you read this, when I read this the first time, I thought, Why is he do- didn't he already deal with this? Isn't this what verse 14 is all about? Like, God relented. He already dealt with it. So why is he going back to God now in verse 30 and asking for forgiveness? Well, he prevented a physical Disaster from happening, but he knows that there's still this spiritual debt that needs to be paid. And he goes to God on behalf of his people, again, asking for God to forgive them. And, and what he says is, look, take me instead. Like, it, it, blot me out instead and forgive those people. And so uh, how does God respond to this? Moses knows that God's not just going to say, okay, it's no, big, it's no biggie, just do whatever, you know, try better next time. He, he's, he's serious. He's like, please forgive them and, and take me instead. And what's crazy is God says no. He says no to Moses. And when I first read this, I thought, oh, that's messed up. Like that's, why would, you, why would he say no here? Well, I want to, to think about something here. If uh, Jeff Bezos walked in this room and said, I am going to pay off all the debt of everyone here, all their house debt, all their cars, every, every piece of debt that they have, I'm paying it all off. We would be like, woo! That, you know, we'd go crazy, that's awesome. That would be so fantastic. Now, when I walk up here on stage and I say, I'm going to pay all your debt, everyone in this room, no one gets excited because I don't have the capacity to pay Everyone's debt, right? I don't have the money. You see, when Moses comes to God and he says, I'll pay their debt, he doesn't have the money. He's he's not capable of paying the debt. He couldn't pay. In uh, movies, when they're shooting movies, they have what's called a stand in for the actors. Because when they're setting up a scene, Um, It takes a long time. They have to get all the lighting right. They have to get, you know, the back, everything just right. And so they have this person that looks like the actor come and stand in the spot where the actor is going to be. And and once they get it all right, that stand-in is removed, and then the actor comes in and does the scene, right? And here's the deal. Moses is the stand-in. Moses is just the placeholder for the one who would truly come He would, the one who would truly be blotted out for our sake. See, Moses couldn't pay, but Jesus did pay. That's why in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That's why in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. See, Jesus on the cross is blotted out so that we can be forgiven. It's it's his atoning sacrifice that makes us right with God. He's the one who stands in our place, not Moses. He's the true image of actually the invisible God. He's he's really what God looks like. And, And when we look to him and him alone, then we are forgiven. And so as Moses stands in this place and God says, you can't pay for this, what he's actually saying is there's going to be some, I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to pay for this myself in Jesus. And so this morning as the band comes back up and we uh, continue to sing these worship songs, I want you to be reminded that God has paid for this. That though we stumble, though we go back to our old ways, sometimes though we make God into things that he's not, God has paid for it. And he calls us now to be holy, to be like him. And so as as we sing this morning, I just want you to be reminded of that. Lord, we thank you that you are the true Moses, the one who truly takes our place. God, thank you that you have called us that you've set us apart. Lord, help us to see areas in our lives where we have misrepresented you. God, we want to worship you as you are, not as we want you to be. God, help us to serve you and not make it the other way around. And God, as we sing this last song, would you remind us how much you love us?